You have a little cinemascus, didn't you? No twink He's bonds. A lot of sucking. It is a hoot and a half. It is so weird, and I don't know what its point is, but I love it. If you kill a child, I'm on board with your movie. <laughs> Diamond Dallas Page, self high five, is the real people's champion. Can I be your bratwurst? Please. Do you have a crush on him? That does not narrow it down. The answer is probably yes. I am obsessed with Schrader. I want that man to marry me. Show me that pale brown eye. (laughs) Bring me to your crypt, baby. Is nice, nice derriere. He has a very sweet ass. Very cute butt. Does. I want to see some dong. Not entirely successful. This is an excruciating experience. I understand that you are the Hoover. It's like a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. We hope that this is never a floppy list. That we get you hard. Hard watch. Soft skip. Watch. Skip. Plus. Welcome, one and all, to another edition of Watch Skip Plus, the movie review podcast with a lifestyle twist. Each week, my co-host and I will review a brand new film, whether that be in the theaters, streaming online, or sometimes simultaneously, and we will let you know whether or not we think you should watch or skip it. The plus is a little bonus review each week. It can be anything from our lives that we want to discuss, whether that be another movie, television show, a song, a life event, the fact that we almost took our cat to the emergency vet because we thought his paw was bleeding, only to discover now it's just a piece of red string attached to his claw. All good. It can be anything. I am the owner of said cat, uh, our boss Shadow, and most known as the Cinemascus Justin the Red, joined as always by my lovely podcasting partner cupcake aka machine gun jelly jose how are you doing i'm great do do you need do you and i need to uh redo our prescription for our glasses apparently well i gotta tell you though the red (laughs) string uh, i think it was from one of the blankets that i had like sewn for me uh or not sewn uh and it like it just had the right texture and i think what prevailed in my mind before like obviously calling and wanting to see it was like well he's not freaking out like i feel like if his claw was bleeding and then i was just like let me take a look i was like okay it's just a whoo but i was just like what the hell just happened because it was like a the right shade of red to look like it so but we're good but yeah i should it was funny a few days after that i got a a letter in the mail from my optometrist like you should probably schedule your yearly checkup i'm like yeah you're right i probably should sad trombone sound effect and there is shadow behind you um on his throne yes we call uh we call so red has a box that he puts his uh recording equipment in and and when he sets up for the recording on sunday mornings usually delayed because i'm always like we need to start a half hour later um shadow loves that box and he loves to just sit in that box i guess because it's occupied otherwise and Mm -hmm. Maybe he has a little box envy. He's like, oh, I bet that feels great to sit in. But nonetheless, he sits in it and he oversees our recording every week. Yeah. And um, speaking of Thrones, I'll just say I'm done my Game of Thrones <laughs> this morning and I'm <laughs> ready to record as, on time. As Not am really I. Time, and but. it seems like <laughs> we are simpatico with our throne uh, visits. Yes. Uh, scheduling, as sketch- it were. Now, let me ask you though something, Jose. Are you ready to be threequalized? That pun is courtesy oh. of good friend of the show, Shane. Uh, he came up with that when I posted my capsule review of the film in which we are discussing this week, that being The Equalizer 3. Before we get there, though, Jose, we got a couple of pluses. Hopefully nothing as uh, heart-wrenching of, you know, for you as it was for oh. me. What's your plus this week? Uh, by the way, I love that the threequalizer. I can't believe I didn't think of Neither that. Neither did That's I. Actually, it's 
pure genius. And after he it. said it, I was like, how did I not get upset that they didn't name the second one the sequelizer? Like, it's right there. Like, it's a, a perfect. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's a and perfect speaking, mad parody title, and I didn't think of it. And speaking of, of word combinations, um, I think, I don't think you coined it, but you mentioned it with me uh, uh, in a text thread. Bloomhouse Pictures and several other studios have now moved their release date of October 13th, which is Friday the 13th, because they're scared of one Taylor Swift era's concert film, which apparently has broken records mm-hmm. for um, pre, pre-booking. I think it's at like 24 million now. Yeah. Jesus God, I guess it's I guess it's the people that can't make it to the concert. Although, you know, that's that's great. Madonna should. Madonna yeah. should think about that. Or honestly, um, people who went to the concert and obviously can't go again, so they just want to relive the experience with other Swifties. Exactly. But you called it uh, Exer Swift, yes. which I, I love that combination. Yeah, I, I found it online where everybody, when it first got announced, obviously when nobody thought Exer Swift was going to move, because in my opinion, completely different demographics. Uh, I was like, ooh, Exer Swift is on the table. And then like a couple hours later, like it's off the table. Um, I, I guess. Yeah. I guess the idea is Bloomhouse wants to be number one for the weekend. And there's no way that's happening if they open alongside Taylor Swift. But I mean, I, even if like they had crossover appeal, Barbenheimer showed people are willing to do double features. But I, I think they were completely different demographics. I think in the long run, it's a dumb move. But I guess not that. Dumb. I just, it's weird that you would lose your Friday the Thirteenth opening just be eh, whatever. Yeah, and I, I had read that they just they didn't want to you know, cannibalize the all important female demographic, Mm -hmm. which, you know, with Barbie, obviously Oppenheimer, I mean, I guess since Killian Murphy is such a babe, Mm -hmm. um, you know, women would be like, sure, I'll check it out. He's hot. Um, But uh, I I don't know. It just, it doesn't make sense, especially Friday 13th. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Right. Yeah. it's perfect. Uh, Okay. So to my plus, uh, this is a makeup plus. So Mm -hmm. all of you, Film guys can just skip to Justin's plus um, if you want. But uh, so when I when I first started doing makeup, uh, obviously I have a love for films. So I would go onto these websites that would do the breakdown of the makeup that they used on people in film. And what I discovered was that the foundations were not the kind of foundations you could go, you know, into uh, Sephora or Ulta and buy. They were, they had these weird names like RCMA and Ben Nye and Graftobian. And I was like, I, these are not in my stores. What are these? And, and, um, if makeup artists are listening to this, uh, there is a offshoot of makeup called professional makeup, pro makeup. And just cause you put the word pro in your line title does not mean it's professional makeup, but the idea behind the professional makeup is that it does not have the 180% markup for profits that the consumer makeup does. And it has more pigment in it and it has been designed to hold up under lights, under sweat, um, you know, for retouching that kind of thing in between takes. And so one of the, one of the more premier uh, foundation lines is, is called RCMA was founded by Vincent Kehoe. I, use that stuff all the time in my wedding makeup and people would always be like, Oh my God, this, this foundation is the best. Where can I get it? And I'm like, ha you can, it's only through pro shops, but, <laughs> but actually, 
you can now get RCMA makeup. But the whole the whole point behind my plus is this: is RCMA just came out with something called the Beach Day Bronzers, and they are a cream bronzer. Bronzer being something that you can add over top of existing makeup to give you that sort of tanned look like you've been out in the sun. You can also use bronzer as a blush or as contouring since contouring is such a big thing with beauty influencers right now. Um, but I had ordered this and I tried it. And the interesting thing about this, this bronzer is that again, it's cream, but it's cream to powder, which means when you activate it, it, it feels like a cream, like a lotion, and then you put it on your skin and then it finishes to like a, a powder finish so that you don't have to set it with makeup. So typically, if there's a cream or a liquid foundation or, or product, if you put a thin layer of powder over top of it or press into it, it gives you that longevity so that even if you do have oil or you sweat, um, it'll still be on your skin and it won't rub off or transfer. Um, so this is a cream to powder, which I'm obsessed with cream to powder primarily because when I first started, there was a foundation called the Nobara cream foundation by Shu Amora. And I mean, this thing would cover anything. It felt light. Um, I watched a documentary of these like sexy rugby guys who were doing like a nude calendar. And that Ooh. was the foundation that they were using on these guys like under their eyes and to cover up like freckles and stuff. You were focused and on the I foundation? Was, <laughs> well, no, no, no. Well, in the behind the scenes, I was like, okay. oh shit, that's the no, that's the Nobara Shuamora compact that they're using. Uh, and so, and then I realized Britney Spears, that was her foundation in her early videos as well. So I ran out to get them, but Shuamora discontinued this cream to powder. Um, and their new iteration was just sucky and poopy and it wasn't anything like that. And I have tried for the last uh, 15 years to find a replacement for the Nobara cream foundation to no avail. Well, this feels exactly like the Shumora Nobara foundation. And I've already emailed the guy who developed this. Um, or I, I put a comment on his Instagram page who developed this Kevin James Bennett. He's under KJ Bennett beauty. Um, but I left a comment and I was like, Please make this into foundation because it's exactly like the Shuamora Nobara cream. Um, I slathered this shit onto my face just to test drive it. And then Scooter and I went out to see uh, Threequalizer. And then we went shopping and ran some errands. And I looked in the mirror and I did not look shiny and gross because I'm, I tend to be kind of oily. So, it, you know, my oils will eat through the makeup and I'll look really, really shiny, either like I've been giving blowjobs on the corner or like, you know, um, or I dip my face in like chicken fat or something like that. But man, this, this beach day bronzer is magnificent. Everybody get it. And the, the best thing about it is, is the lightest shade for the bronzer is essentially my skin tone. So I was like, yes, it's my foundation now. So I love it. Um, and you, know. you can get this at rcmamakeup.com. And that's R as in red, C as in cat, M as in Mary, A, makeup.com. It's the Beach Day Collection. Uh, they are they retail 24. It's a small little pot, but you, you don't need a lot. And my skin looked like my skin just better. And I love it. And I love this this creation. Thank you, Kevin James Bennett and RCMA. Okay. It's it 
it saved my life. I feel beautiful now. Anyway. Uh, well, you know, uh, when I'm done giving blowjobs in a, an alley, I love to <laughs> stick my face into a greasy bucket of fried chicken. So I'm glad <laughs> that there is a foundation for me to make sure I look my best afterwards. Uh, no, That's right. They don't call it a job for nothing. That's why we sweat. Okay? <laughs> exactly. Look, three quarters isn't going to pay for itself. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's uh, right. And this podcast has some monthly costs, I'll tell you. <laughs> So. <laughs> that's, that's very true. All <laughs> right. Well, if you were all possibly skipping over Jose's because it was another makeup tutorial, well, you might skip over mine because it's yet another pro wrestling plus. That being the biggest. I love it. I love it. One of arguably the biggest pro wrestling events in history, that being AEW All in London, which took place last Sunday. So immediately after our recording, actually, due to it being live in London and time zone differences, it started early afternoon and ended early evening. I'm a fan of that. Now, unfortunately, the show has since been overshadowed in this past week and not by our shadow uh, going into yeah. it. Uh, one of the wrestlers in one of the big top matches in the tag team title match, uh, Cash Wheeler, was involved uh he got arrested and he was involved in some uh assault charges or just charges in general question whether or not he was going to make it not only did he make it he actually won the match and got the winning pinfall so i guess none of that really matters in, in the pro wrestling world uh so that was kind of arguably overshadowing and then in the weeks since cm punk one of the top stars has been fired because he got into yet another backstage altercation at all in prior to his match and oh my god yeah so apparently he's been he's been let go which i mean even i will say regardless of thoughts of punk as a wrestler or, you know from what i can understand backstage wise tony khan did the right thing or at least he had some sort of backbone because there was a big issue at last year's event and punk publicly chastised the company so and it was very clear that tony khan was a, a mark as they were to say for cm punk and was happy to have him so I'm sure more will come out from there. It, it does not sound good on CM Punk's camp. Obviously, they, they just had over 81,000 fans in London. That should be the big story. Uh, just to give you all a little bit of a backstory, AEW is only four years old. The first All In, which is uh, what the show's named after, was five years old. And what that was, it basically came about because of a tweet, an innocuous tweet from a wrestling fan asking Dave Meltzer, who is one of the premier wrestling journalists, do you think a non-WWE, you know, event can draw over 10,000 fans into an arena here in the States, specifically indies and all that. Um, and Dave Meltzer was on and says, no, I don't think so. You know, the days of TNA Impact being that big or possibly reaching out aren't there. Maybe like a New Japan tour, even though the U.S. tours haven't done it. Well, at the time, uh, Cody Rhodes, who was on the outs from WWE, who had become friends with the Elite, Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks and that, who big stars in NGPW and Independence, they took that as a challenge. So they booked uh, an arena in the Sears Center in Chicago and were able to sell an event with over 10,000 fans in attendance. So proving this fan and Dave Meltzer wrong. And the wow. domino effect was Tony Khan, billionaire from the Khan family, Jacksonville uh, Jaguars, all that. Um, he had already been a lifelong wrestling fan had been interested in making his own wrestling company for a while. This was the perfect opportunity. Thus, he talked to the Young Bucks and them. All Elite Wrestling came about. So five years after this All In event, and they haven't done All In ever again. They've done All Out. Well, then, of course, the goalposts were always changing as they were being more successful. And then people were saying, well, what about a stadium? Do you think they could fill a stadium? And even I was like, yeah, probably not. 
Well, not only did they fill a stadium, they filled Wembley. When it was announced they were going to do a stadium show in, in UK, we all assumed, I think it was Craven Cottage that they own, which still, I think, thirty or 40000 But I'm like, that's your limit. There's no way you're filling up Wembley. These mad lads did it before a card was even announced. Regardless wow. of your thoughts on AEW, wrestling industry, this is great to have in the United States two companies being able to sell stadium shows of over 70, 80, some thousand people. That's phenomenal. Obviously, New Japan has been able to do it in the Tokyo Dome in Japan. Mexico or AAA has been able to do it in Mexico with, you know, Triple Mania. That is amazing. It's a shame that it's getting overshadowed by so much backstage and outside stuff. Even bigger shame is the fact that I think the biggest thing coming out of it is the main event of this historic show, two-thirds of it was represented by Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The challenger uh, for the AEW World Championship is Adam Cole Bebe, and he was born and raised uh, right here in Lancaster. He went to McCaskey High School. Granted, ooh. he's never announced as being from Lancaster because he moved to uh, Florida, but he's always, I mean, he was even interviewed earlier this year. He's, he's a sweetheart. He still loves uh, Lancaster. And then the referee for the contest, Bryce Remsburg, if that is his real name, he has since (laughs) moved in the past few years to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I believe. I can't remember where he came from, maybe Eastern Pennsylvania, but I believe he was a Pennsylvania, maybe it was just Philly, and he was looking to move his family, and Lancaster seemed nice. You know, he was asking people, a couple of us were like, yeah, yeah, we're in the Lancaster area, and he's fallen in love with it. So, really, this is just proven that Lancaster, Pennsylvania is the greatest city in the world. Well, actually, hold up. That might raise our rent and property value. Listen, it's actually not that good. I'm glad that wrestlers. I mean, there's a reason Adam Cole left. Hey, uh, you're already you're already all in. So you you could promote Lancaster and then raise your own real estate values. True, but I don't want to do that because <laughs> uh, I'm looking to hopefully maybe get my own place, like buy a house soon. So I'd be, for the time being, you know what, folks? Amish mafia is running wild. You know, it, <laughs> it'll be great in like you know five years, maybe. Then then you know, raise that property value. But seriously though, uh, all in tremendous show. This is great on AEW. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, September 3rd, almost said July. Wow, I'm way off. What? And what time th- warp? And this is a week after All In, which ended up being a pay-per-view, a $50 pay-per-view. And their normal September Labor Day weekend pay-per-view all out, they decided we're going to still do it from Chicago and still charge people 50 I think that's backfiring. Even if CM Punk was on this card, I don't think it would have helped it. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. I don't foresee it making that much money since a lot of people, myself included, spent the 50 on All In. And also the theater I usually go to to see these events. Obviously wasn't doing All In because that was kind of, I think they were planning on HBO Max possibly or somewhere else because they kind of hid mm. the fact that it was going to be a pay-per-view until like July. So I think they were trying to work something out, uh, possibly maybe doing a bundle. But they usually do All Out. I don't see it on their uh, timetable. And to be honest with you, it's... Even though on paper the card looks good, I don't know if I travel for it. All in was such a huge event. Trying to do another show a week after is just gonna feel small. Yeah. I know Tony Conte is gonna do it next year. <laughs> we'll see what happens after the buy rates come in in Chicago and all that. But all in London, fantastic show, top to bottom. Loved the main event. Loved Adam Cole and MJF. I normally hate the storylines of partners who are people enemies put together as partners who hate each other and they kind of maybe like each other but these two have such tremendous chemistry and i love the fact that the twist going in was who's going to turn on who guess what the twist was folks there was no twist friendship won out uh mjf retained but instead of turning on each other at the end they hugged it out i felt great i feel great coming out all in 
tremendous show. Tony Khan, if you're listening, you have your new Hobbs and Shaw. You can do an offshoot film yeah. with those two. Yeah, definitely. I um, will pay I a lot of people because they've done cinematic like backstage segments to show like their burgeoning friendship and like their uh I, I would love it. I'd I'd be down for it. So just a couple things. One, bingo. I think CM Punk is uh, so deliciously mm-hmm. hot. And so I might suggest to him, Mr. Punk, Mr. Punk, Mr. Punk, if you're listening, there's always an OnlyFans. You can <laughs> you can go the way of Drea Mate- De Mateo. And while you're yes. looking for more wrestling work, you can start an OnlyFans. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say is apparently, because I did a quick Googs on this, Apparently, this stems from uh, a, a dust-up with Jack Perry, mm-hmm. who I didn't even know this. This is Luke Perry's yep. son. That's and correct. when you look at the pictures, I'm like, hells yeah. He has this beautiful, luscious, long, curl, curly hair. But apparently, they were doing something on something called Collision. And uh, Perry wanted to use a glass, an actual glass prop. And CM Punk objected to that, apparently. Um and then uh, I guess Jack Perry looked into the camera and uttered, it's real glass, go cry me a yep. river while brawling near a car and before being suplexed through the windshield. Boy, you got to love these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so apparently there was a, uh, there was a, a big, big thing between Khan and Punk over this situation. And while it has not truly come to light what actually happened, the rumor is, is that Punk may have been physically violent with Tony Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, I'm on deadspin.com, which I'm sure is a legitimate source, y'all. Um, actually, it's a, it's an offshoot of the old Deadspin when What's-His-Face was part of it. But it says a neutral source says that apparently he shoved, punched, and possibly choked um, Perry in front of Tony Khan and then lunged at Tony Khan. And there might've been some physicality there. Yeah. So let me just try to paint a little bit better of a picture. I mean, you actually nailed it pretty much on the head. Uh, CM Punk has been one of my favorites in ring performers. Uh, he had a big nasty falling out with WWE over you know, at the time, probably rightful them wanting to work injured him, not ha- being happy with his spot, but there had always been these reports that he's never been easy to deal with living up to the punk name. And when mm-hmm. AEW signed him, because when he left WWE, he left wrestling, he tried doing UFC that <laughs> blew up in his face, but he's since, you know, done acting commentary for MMA uh, at the cage fighting fury. I forget the name of it. Uh, doing comic books and that. So nobody thought he was going to go back to wrestling uh, when AEW finally signed him. <laughs> Triple H, uh, who is one of the COOs of WWE, said <laughs> he's their problem now. And that became true Whoa. because regardless, and we're only ever going to hear what we hear coming out. There could have been other backstage drama happening in AEW. But for the most part, there really wasn't sure. outside of maybe some altercations with like maybe Eddie Kingston and Sammy Guevara. And both parties kind of, you know, nip shit in the bud and, you know, were professional about it. Uh, but the joke was always all AEW, you know, was all friends wrestling because it was too nice. Wrestling's always been this carny business where it's, you know, the men are the men, you know, nobody's fighting anymore. CM Punk comes in within a year. There's talks of it being a toxic environment, people being split. Obviously, they're punk fans. Uh, punk seems to be if you like him or he likes you, he's nice to you. But if not, he's very confrontational. And at last year's All Out event in their press scrum after winning the title, he went on this whole rant about how others in the company, namely some of the EVPs being Kenny Omega and the 
the Young Bucks, you know, were spreading rumors about him. Uh, he's trying to run a business. They couldn't manage a target. And then he had flat out said, if you have a problem with me, come to my locker room. So they went to his locker room and then they oh. apparently struck them. His part, uh, one of his, uh, I guess, one of the workers of the company, but one of his confidants, uh, Ace Steel, bit Kenny Omega. Uh, so there was a big suspension over that. And of course, Punk was also injured at the time. Came back, the argument of collision, which was your show. The prevailing thought was they created this brand new show to get CM Punk away from the elite and the young bucks and to hopefully appease him. Whether or not some of that is true, I think they were probably going to have the show regardless. But it's clear Punk really hadn't shown up on Dynamite. They weren't showing up on Collision. In the case of the Jack Perry incident, if that glassing is true, I, I think it comes down more to Punk was in the right of you shouldn't be using real glass if you, you don't have to, especially, you know, somebody young with Jack Perry. I think the issue just came down to more how Punk was handling it. And again, Punk has been known for making these types of like Jack Perry in the middle of his match just looks at the camera and goes, you know, oh, it's real glass, cry me a river. Punk's known for doing shit like that. He's had big issues with Hangman Adam Page, who has not said anything since because he felt Page went off script in a promo. But Punk, that's one of his motifs. So it's is he being a hypocrite when it's OK for him to do it, not others? Like you said, you know, there's going to be more shit coming out. The prevailing thought is that, yes, when they got into this altercation, which would have happened right before Punk's match in Gorilla, not only did he apparently lunge or start choking Perry after, like, get confronting him, apparently he knocked over monitors, hit Tony Khan. The last thing we heard was apparently he lunged at Tony Khan, and they had to have other wrestlers pulling him apart. He apparently threatened mm. to quit at that time, but Samoa Joe obviously wanted to wrestle in front of 81,000 fans, so talked him into doing that. The fact that Kony Khan came on to Collision, which, by the way, that and All Out are in Chicago, which is Punk's hometown and Punk Central. So the fact that he had to come out in front of the live crowd and say, hey, look, I made had to make the hard decision to let Punk go because I feared for my and my workers' mm. safety. I, yeah. And the fact that Wembley is, since it's newer, like they've redone it recently. There was apparently CTV cameras all over the place. They were documenting stuff just probably for documentary's sake anyway because it's a big event. I'm thinking when he says, hey, you know, we had outsourced, you know, lawyers come in with an actual legal team saying you have to fire him. Uh, sure, Punk could probably sue for wrongful termination, but the sounds of it, I don't think he's winning. I think he probably yeah. in the heat of the moment. And in all seriousness, folks, regardless of what has happened backstage, I know wrestling, I've mentioned it before, it's always been a volatile backstage environment. This probably doesn't touch on a lot of shit that has happened in the past. One, that doesn't change the fact that we're in 2023. This isn't, you know, should never be allowed to begin with. And two, Punk, I desperately think, just from everything that I can hear, you probably do need to really seek out mental health because there's an, an old saying that, and I'm probably going to butcher it. If you encounter an asshole in the morning, chances are you encounter an asshole. If you encounter multiple assholes throughout the day, chances are you're the asshole. There have been so many incidents since you've come and other companies, pretty much every company has had this. Maybe you're the common denominator to, you know, to call back to Taylor Swift, maybe you're the problem. It's you. You know, I don't, you and know, baby, we got bad blood, <laughs> you know, uh, regardless, I, I, you know, hope if he does need mental health, he gets the help he needs. I think AEW will be fine without him. Obviously he was drawing more, you know, definitely some more people, but all in London was sold without him. He was in the opening match. Regardless, wrestling is bigger than one personality nowadays. Craziness coming out of this. You know, much longer, you know, plus than I expected to play. But hey, that's that's pro wrestling sometimes, baby. Yeah. 
Also, uh, just as a segue or a bridge, if you will, to our movie review, um, Jack Perry's nickname is apparently Jungle Boy, Mm -hmm. which reminds me of the fact that you had brought up Jungle Love. Jungle Love. Oh, we, yo, we, yo. Girl, I want to know you. Know you. All right. So that is by Morris Day and the Time, but I conflated it with Jungle Boogie, Jungle which is why Jungle Boogie sampled famously in the Madonna song Erotica, as well as other songs. But I had unfortunately and mistakenly conflated it with Jungle Boogie, which was featured in the beginning of Pulp Fiction. Right stadium, wrong field. I probably got that saying wrong. Whatever. Anyway, I was <laughs> resoundly corrected by the Quentin Tarantino expert, Brad, from Not A Bomb Podcast. <laughs> Very quickly <laughs> upon release of this episode. Uh, but, Red, that brings us to our movie. Yes. So we have a cast and crew. Uh, before I go with people in front of the camera, let's go below the line to you, Jose, who is responsible for bringing the Equalizer 3 to screen. Here we go. So the Threequalizer, as we're going to call it now, is based on the seminal television series created by Michael Sloan and Richard Lindheim. Sorry, that was uh, in the early 80s starring Ed Woodward, who I didn't even realize was the Wicker Man until much later. I started watching the television show because Billy Zabka, a very gorgeous actor known for his teen rom-com roles in things like Back to School, but also in the new Cobra Kai series for Netflix. But I watched it just because he was on it. But then I ended up falling in love with the show. And by the way, one of the co-creators, Michael Sloan, is married to an actress, Melissa Sue Anderson of Little House on the Prairie fame. She actually played the illegitimate daughter of The Equalizer on that television show. So our director is one Antoine Fuqua, Despite the exotic-sounding name, he has actually been mistaken for being French. (laughs) Um, Fuqua was born and raised in the exotic country of Pennsylvania. Here's another. Yep, he was raised in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Uh, Pittsburgh. (laughs) That's a couple hours away. That's where WWE's pay-per-view was just at recently. Look at that. It all comes full circle. It all does. It all goes back to our bingo card, as it were. Uh, Believe it or not, Fuqua actually studied electrical engineering and dreamed of flying jets in the military. Now, very candidly, Fuqua has stated that he grew up in a very rough and very violent neighborhood. And unfortunately, at the age of 15, he was actually shot. And he credits this event as essentially changing his life. He realized There's no way he could run the streets. And so that actually allowed him to dive into other pursuits, such as football, for which he got a scholarship to college, and of course, movies. He became a cinephile. In college, he would take art classes and he would be inspired by the artist Caravaggio. This is an artist who uses a lot of shadow and light. Talk to any DP and they will tell you Caravaggio is an influence on all of their work. And so while fostering his love of films and directors like Akira Kurosawa and Kurosawa's collaborators Shinobu Hashimoto and Ideo Uguni, he fell in love with their works, noting that they were often about justice and sacrifice. And these are qualities that would soon find their way into nearly 
every film of Fuqua's uh, resume. So Fuqua started out doing music videos for Mary J. Blige, Heavy D and the Boys, Tony Braxton, also a Maryland uh, local hometown hero. Notably, Jerry Bruckheimer promoted the directing of the music video Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio, which also featured Michelle Pfeiffer, as it was the main sort of promo song and video music video for Dangerous Minds. And so that got Fuqua's name out, and his first film was Replacement Killers, which may not have been entirely successful, but it certainly had a lot of visual style to burn. It was one of those movies that I would just sort of, like you read, I would have on in the background with maybe the sound down, just because the visuals are so fantastic. It also was the first movie to introduce American audiences to Chow Yun-Fa, and Fuqua followed that up with the action thriller Bait, starring Jamie Foxx. His next two films would eventually put Fuqua on the map. And they would start not only his sort of association with action as a filmic language, but it would start his relationship with one Denzel Washington. And so I'm looking at 2001's Training Day, written by David Iyer, who it seems anytime is in the press is constantly bemoaning his experience in Hollywood with the Suicide Squad. But that is another plus (laughs) or episode, because I quite like Mr. Iyer. I just wish he would... uh, I don't know, move on from that. But anyway, Training Day netted uh, Denzel Washington the Best Actor Oscar and a nomination for his co-star Ethan Hawke, and yet no praise for Fuqua himself, which I guess that happens, right? And so 2003, he followed that up with Tears of the Sun, starring Bruce Willis. That is an underappreciated and, frankly, undervalued film that not only exemplifies Fuqua's Kurosawian inspiration values of justice and sacrifice, but it is an amazing action film. It also has the scariest tension-filled scene ever in an action film. It made me want to hide under my seat, and and I just, my stomach turns every time I watch that particular scene. You'll know exactly what I mean when you watch it if you haven't seen it, so Tears of the Sun. Fuqua would eventually take on bigger and bigger studio picks, like Bruckheimer's Bloated But Fun, King Arthur, Marcus Wahlberg's um, shooter, Marcus Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg's shooter, um, which itself was an adaptation of Baltimore-based film critic Stephen Hunter's novel. And eventually he would land in movie jail after the failure of 2009 star-studded Brooklyn's Finest. So it wasn't actually until 2013 that Fuqua returned to the action genre with the trifecta of 2013's Olympus Has Fallen, 2014's The Equalizer, the first of this trilogy, and then later the well-received remake of The Magnificent Seven. Most recently, Fuqua has gotten his streaming on, directing Paramount Plus's Infinite, again with Marcus Wahlberg. Netflix's The Guilty with Jake Gyllenhaal, whom he also directed in the boxing drama Southpaw, and the pilot for Prime's Terminal List with Magnificent Seven alum Chris Pratt. Let's also not forget that Fuqua has directed some excellent documentaries, 2004's Lightning in a Bottle about the blues, the musical genre that is, American Dream, American Nightmare, Nightmare with a K, that's about rapper Shug Knight, and Legacy, the true story of the LA Lakers. Most recently, he directed Apple Plus's movie Emancipation, starring Will Smith, and that was Smith's first post-slap-heard-round-the-world film release. Our writer is Richard Richard Wenk. 
W-E-N-K, not Wank, who for some reason I conflated with actor Thomas Lank. They couldn't be any more different people. But nonetheless, Wank is most known as the writer and director of 1986's Vamp, starring Grace Jones and Chris Makepeace and Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, Michelle's sister. Speaking of movie jail, I'm going to say that landed him in movie jail because he wouldn't return to directing until 1994, directing two TV movies, and then eventually in 98, directing a screenplay he wrote for the drama Just the Ticket with Andy Garcia. Wank has written 16 Blocks, the remake of Bronson's The Mechanic. He is to blame for both Expendables 2 and The Drecky Countdown, Bingo, which stars Dolph Diggler and Kane, who's very sexy, as well as the underwhelming Jack Reacher Never Go Back, which should have been called Jack Reacher Never Go See. Uh, previous, previous, I love that Gene Schaller review of yours. <laughs> Perfect. And I agree. It's, it's so not good. snarky sometimes. And I agree. So it was not good. Sometimes. It was not good. Uh, previous Fuqua products include the Equalizer films, as well as the remake of Magnificent Seven. And most recently, Wank wrote Martin Campbell's noir exploitation action thriller, The Protégé, which I gifted Red mm-hmm. with because I love the shit out of that movie. And, and it was it good. Stars my girl, Maggie Q and Samuel L. Jackson. He is also, um, uh, oh, side note, I should also mention that Fuqua has been a producer, producing some TV spinoffs of his filmic properties and other action films, such as Happy Anniversary. He was one of the producers for Bullet Train. Hey! Yeah. Our notable producers are uh, Washington and Fuqua are producers here. Wank is a co-producer. Todd Black, Jason Blumenthal, and Steve Tisch. Why are these names familiar? Well, they are the Escape Artists. That is their production banner that they formed in 2001. Um, Steve Tisch, you'll note, is a prolific producer. Amongst a number of films, he produced a little film called Forrest Gump. Escape Artists has produced A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, Alex and Emma, The Weatherman with Nick Cage and the Will Smith films Seven Pounds and Pursuit of Happiness with a Y. And they have produced several Fuqua's films, including the Equalizer movies. Our music is by Marcello Zarvras. He is Greek, but he grew up in Brazil and now resides in New York. He has scored some of Fuqua's films, Brooklyn's Finest and The Guilty and Emancipation. Notable scores also include The Good Shepherd, HBO's Taking Chance, Wonder and Maplethorpe. And he has scored the series The Affair, Ray Donovan, and American Gigolo, which apparently signals maybe he was an in-house composer for Paramount, which owns Showtime. Those are all Showtime TV shows. Recently, he scored the remake of White Man Can't Jump, which was a Hulu exclusive. Eva Rodriguez's directorial debut, Flaming Hot, which I hear is actually pretty good. And he has scored May-December, the anticipated Todd Haynes film with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Our DP for this film is Robert Richardson. If you do not know who Robert Richardson is, you should probably stop listening to our podcast because (laughs) he is probably one of the greatest directors of photography stateside ever. Um, He has won three Academy Awards and earned seven Academy Award nominations for his cinematography. He had a longstanding relationship with Oliver Stone. JFK is the film that earned him his first Oscar. He's also worked with Martin Scorsese, um, basically got nominations for The Aviator as well as Hugo and would later lend Scorsese's uh, Bringing Out the Dead. Um, 
he has also, after his falling out with Oliver Stone for whatever reasons, is the mainstay DP weapon of choice for Quentin Tarantino. Um, again, he has shot almost all of those films, uh, all, almost all of Quentin Tarantino's films. Um, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight. He's also shot films like Ben Affleck's Live by Night, Balthazar, Comacore's um, Adrift, A Private War, and of course, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oddly enough, Venom 2 is also on his uh, resume, but Richardson is absolutely brilliant. He recently lensed Emancipation for Fuqua, as well as Air, um, which was directed by Ben Affleck for Amazon Studios. One last shout out, that is our production designer, Naomi Shohan. She has a very, very long-standing relationship with Antoine Fuqua, and in fact is his production designer weapon of choice. She has also been the production designer for Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which is one of my favorite Kevin Williamson movies. Um, nobody loved it. I loved it. I don't care. Uh, American I'm happy for Beauty. you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, American Beauty, the Keanu Reeves films, Sweet November and Constantine, which is also, Constantine's also one of my favorite films ever. Uh, and the production designer for I Am Legend, The Lovely Bones, and The Winter's Tale. Red, okay. who is in this Whew. film? Well, that was very loaded, and it's actually kind of fitting because, I'll be honest with you folks, I have a smaller roll call this week. Uh, we'll dive into the reason why when we get to the full review, but there's, in my opinion, only a few actors in here who have a big presence in this movie. Uh, and I'm actually glad that it's kind of small because starting with Denzel Washington returning as Robert McCall uh, gives me an opportunity to go over his career a little bit. Burke going to the scene with a comedy Cry Frida, oh, sorry, comedy carbon copy and then went on to do right freedom such a comedy about apartheid yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> i could edit that folks but i'm not going to because that's a really funny <laughs> slip up he started in the comedy carbon copy but then quickly yes. went into more serious fare such as the drama cry freedom about apartheid uh glory the Mighty Quinn, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, which he did with Spike Lee. And I believe that was his first Oscar nomination. Am I wrong? I, I thought I had that written down, but he got nominated, right? I believe so for I Malcolm believe. X. Also, Mo Better Blues. Oh, you know what? He got nominated for Mo Better, I think. Because that was also a Spike Lee joint, yes. too. Uh, he was in Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. He did the Pelican Brief alongside Julia Roberts. And her height of her fame was in mm -hmm. the Oscar-nominated Philadelphia Crimson Tide with Gene Hackman. The very good neo-noir Devil in a Blue Dress, which I finally watched recently. Very solid stuff. He so good. He got Game, The Hurricane. Arguably most known, uh, especially if you go to any high school ever since this has happened, uh, remember the Titans. It's been a very big favorite of the, the football crowd. As you mentioned, he was one, not just nominated, but won the Oscar for his work at Antoine Fuqua's training day. That would start their relationship. Uh, he was in Antoine Fisher, Man on Fire, uh, Inside Man. Um, which is actually a really solid Spike Lee film that doesn't seem like a Spike Lee film, but it, it's very good. American it's Gangster, so good. The Book of Eli, Flight, Fences, Antoine Fuqua's remake of The Magnificent Seven, and recently was in films such as The Little Things and The Tragedy of Macbeth. That's just a small capsule of this dude's big, big career. Uh, I didn't even mention the other comedy he did, Heart Condition with Bob Hoskins. Uh, <laughs> you yes. know, it's just so uh, much... And by the and by the way, actor-wise, he was um, he was nominated for Cry Fe Freedom for the first time as supporting 
role, won the Oscar for Glory as Best Actor in a Supporting Role, nominated for Malcolm X, nominated for The Hurricane, won for Training Day, nominated for other films as well. But yes, yes, Denzel Washington is amazing. Very prolific actor. And I don't think he got nominated for it, but I know, uh, I think it was Roman J. Esquire was one that was one of those Oscar bait type films. I own it, still haven't watched it. That's a new bingo card. He did get nominated. Oh, he did get nominated. There we go. So that's another one he got nominated for. I own, haven't watched it. That could also be on your bingo card, folks. I feel like I say that a lot. Co-starring and joining the cast is Dakota Fanning as Emma Collins. She had actually worked as a young child actress with Denzel Washington on Man on Fire in 2004, but she broke onto the scene in 2001, portraying uh, Sean Penn's daughter in I Am Sam. She would then go on to do films such as Sweet Home Alabama with Reese Witherspoon, Uptown Girls with Brittany Murphy, the dreadful adapta- live-action adaptation of The Cat in the Hat with Mike Myers, which kind of sunk his, <laughs> in my opinion, his on-screen career because he kind of just stuck doing Shrek for a while, and then he did The Love Guru. Movie and then jail. He hit himself again. Mike Myers, man, you got to check yourself. Uh, Hide and Seek with Robert De Niro, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, Charlotte's Web, the excellent Coraline, which is stop-mation. You should get on it, Jose, if you haven't. It's absolutely wonderful. Yes. The Runaways. Uh, she was in a couple of the Twilight Saga films. She was in Ocean's 8, Please Stand By, which I still haven't seen, but I've heard is really good. Uh, she appeared in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and is most known recently for series work such as The Alienist and The First Lady. Uh, very interesting because she was, I mean, I guess I was, I was older than her, I guess, around the time of like Man on Fire and that. But we're kind of close on age, so it's kind of interesting seeing her grow up. Uh, portraying... Vincent Coranta, who is one of the main villains, is Andrea Scarduzio. Uh, He was actually in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part Ron. Uh, He is credited as being the wrong man. So he was on our show recently. Very small role in that. Uh, But mainly doing works internationally, such as Color of the Cross, Dark Crossing, The Young Messiah, Hard Night Falling, Rome Romian and the devil conspiracy, but he has appeared in certain stateside shows such as the crown genius until death. And in playing his, I guess his son, but the hired hand, uh, Marco Quaranta is also another Andrea, Andrea Dodero, uh, up and coming actor appeared in films such as, uh, only film he has appeared in, I should say is thou shalt not hate, um, notable anyway. And he has done series work such as Balajo 181 and the good mothers. Joining the cast as Frank Conroy, he uh, works alongside Emma Collins uh, as part of the CIA, is David Denman, most known for portraying Pam's original love interest in the American version of The Office. I also threw this in. He appeared on an episode of The X-Files because Jose has been doing his re- revisit through that series, and I'm loving him texting me every now and then. Like, oh my God, look who's look who's on an episode. That's probably my favorite thing about revisiting shows is seeing who pops up. So he, I don't know if he was on an episode you've seen yet, but he will appear briefly in one of those episodes. Uh, I did see that one. It was, uh, it, it was pretty fantastic. I, I think it was called Field Trip. I think it you're was right. Awesome. I think you're right. Cause he would have been youngish also, around that time, I guess like college age or high school age. Youngish and svelte. Mm-hmm. I happen to think he's very attractive and I like him much heavier. So, do so I. his 
yeah, he's uh, another David. David Harbour was in Equalizer 1. There another David in this series that I think is sexy. Well, look at this. This series has the David hunks. And it's fitting because my middle name is David. <laughs> and I would consider myself oh. a hunk. <laughs> anyway, Red hunk. Red, red hunk. Ooh, red hunk. There's a new nickname. Uh, <laughs> as for films, he appeared in films such as The Replacements, Out Cold, uh, Big Fish. That was the one directed by Tim Burton. He was in the When a Stranger Calls remake. Do not remember him in that, but I barely remember that remake. Fanboys, Fair Game, uh, that was the film with Naomi Watts and I believe Sean Penn. Uh, After Earth, which starred, as we mentioned earlier, Will Smith, pre-slap, but that was also surprisingly directed by M. Night Shyamalan. That thing was a big bomb. He was in Men, Women, and Children. The Gift, that being the one with Jason Bateman and Joel Edgerton, excellent film. Uh, 13 Hours, that was the Benghazi film. The Power Rangers reboot that read, read, that I, me and I only know, that Cupcake and I quite liked. Uh, we love. Logan Lucky, Brightburn, which I think is pretty divisive. I was not a big fan of. Greenland and Joyride, that being the recent comedy, not the 2001 thriller. And then lastly, I'm probably going to butcher this, portraying Uh-oh. the love interest, I guess you could consider. Amina is... G- Gaia Scudellaro, Gia, Gia, maybe it's Gia, Gaia. Uh, I think it's Gaia. Gaia, Gaia Scudellaro. If I'm not mistaken, Gaia means like um, world. Okay. I think. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, she's been in films such as Vera Bays, on Andron, The Black Labyrinth, Watch Them Fall, Promises, State of Consciousness, and series such as You, Me, and the Apocalypse, and That Dirty Black Bag. There are a couple other people that popped up, but I don't know. It's, we're going to get into why I think these are the only people probably worth mentioning. And for that, I am going to send it on over to you, Jose, for your spoiler-free thoughts of The Threequalizer, I guess, a.k.a. The Equalizer Part 3. <laughs> okay, so... As I said, I am an Equalizer fan, the original series, and there's even a new series, which is not related to this trilogy, but the new series on CBS features Queen Latifah and my girl. Yes, I have two my girls, um, Liza Lapira. She's Filipino, but she uh, plays this badass like female sniper assassin. It's pretty cool. But I remember I actually revisited Equalizer 1 and 2, Uh, I remember really liking Equalizer 1 and not really liking Equalizer 2 so much. The thing about Equalizer 1 that I think is, I'm going to make two points about the film. One, it was released the same year as John Wick. Mm -hmm. And so there was this kind of superhero, I can kill everybody kind of like uh, theme going with action films. But Equalizer 1 was kind of a, a point of difference because of the way it was shot, which was the first film is incredibly shot. The DP is a gentleman named Mauro Fiore. And there's a little nod to him in this film. The cafe that when Washington sits in is called cafe Fiore. Um, At least I think it's a nod to him, but Mauro who won an Oscar for shooting uh, James Cameron's avatar. He's actually Italian. So I'm surprised he didn't come back to film uh, to to lens this film but nonetheless the first film is shot so well and there is these beautiful visual nods to the meticulousness of this particular character so in the first film there are a lot of shots of uh of um clocks shots of up close details and when he engages with people there's this these very like long lens shots of just their faces and everything is blocked out the first film 
additionally has a really, I was struck by how malevolent and just exceedingly violent that film was. And it was uncompromising in its violence. It's not, it's not played for entertainment. It doesn't have the roadrunner sort of uh, uh, kineticism of the John Wick films. It's just really nasty and unpleasant. And the thing about the equalizer was that he, the character in the television show and the character here to some extent is always helping out the underdog, the sort of average citizen who gets a bum deal or they are, you know, there are these forces that are sort of working against them. And because this particular character has a background in the CIA. We don't really know his full background, but obviously, as he says, he's done some things he's not very proud of. He's killed people, but he does this to help people out. And so I love the first one. Again, it's just exceedingly nasty and violent, though. Um, the second film took more of the episodic nature of the television show. And for that, um, it also added a, a convoluted like international plot. But for that, unfortunately, the second one is, I mean, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a full-on cinema turd, which is what I called it in a text thread to um, the, uh, Sammy and, and Troy and Brad, but it, it's, it's not very good and it, it's very predictable. And so I was a little worried about how they were going to finish this one up. Um, and this obviously as a crime thriller there are some things that they did with this character in the script that i found somewhat refreshing given that this is the third picture and so i don't um and so it starts with the character sort of being vulnerable and not being able to be the superhero that he was in the other two films and he has to work his way up um, in terms of like helping this small Italian town that he has uh, moved to as the uh, as the film opens. Um, and it's sort of it's weird. The beginning fashions him as kind of this like angel of death, which doesn't quite square with the fact that, you know, he's doing this to atone for his past, but in addition to helping people. And more so than the other films, I was more struck by this film, I guess, because of the seriousness with which everything was taken in this in this particular film. I was more struck by the contradictory nature of the I'm doing this to help people because you're also killing people and breaking their bones and potentially like and you know affecting all of these lives by doing what you're doing putting people so does that in, make yeah he's putting people in danger more than actually helping them and i'm not even referring to the ones right. that he's hurting but the people he's trying to defend and i think that's always been the argument with vigilantism is you might just be stoking yeah. a fire worse but right and so uh, more so than the other films because on some level like some of the people in my audience they were getting a kick out of Denzel Washington doing his like equalizer bit, which yeah, I, I can get a kick of that out of that as well. But as I said, that first film, like, wow, it's just, it's such ugly violence. And so with this film, not only did it feel contradictory that, you know, the ends justify the means, which we know is not, you know, the way life should be. And as red had indicated, vigilantism is a double edged sword while I found this entertaining and I did like some of the visuals, I did like some of the more emotional beats. I did like the chemistry between him and Dakota Fanning. 
Um, I did like some of the beats uh, uh, and the story twists that we'll get to in the spoiler section. Um, but unfortunately, this film is just a retread of the first film. And I found it predictable um, and as as kinetic as some of the scenes are. It's not as action-packed as the other films. Um, it is certainly violent. I did not appreciate the desaturated imagery of of the photography i do think rob uh, robert richardson is a genius but how are you going to set this on the amalfi coast and desaturate the color out of the italian coastline like it looks almost like a black and white noir film and I don't know. I, I think that there would have been a good juxtaposition between the color pop of Italy and this small village and the charm of it with the ugly violence of this. They made a wrong choice, in my opinion, with the look of this film. But again, this is just a retread of the first film. There is a quote unquote handing off if Denzel Washington doesn't want to do this. I kind of was hoping Queen Latifah would show up in the final frame. Um, Spoiler alert, to, like, she does not. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler, she does not, but just to sort of merge the television show and the movies. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's it's passable entertainment, but unfortunately, it's not a strong finish to this trilogy. I would say it's probably best for streaming. And this is not to devalue Washington, who is just, I mean, he's a hypnotic marvel. There are choices he makes in his acting. And Fuqua has gone on record saying that, you know, he doesn't really direct Denzel. Denzel apparently just goes in, does his thing, asks, can I do this? Can I try this different? What do you think about this? But his choices and an act as an actor are just magnificent. And he is so good in this, but the movie just is not as good as he is. So unfortunately, it's a skip. Okay. Well, I am glad that you brought up John Wick because I was going to bring that up because this did. I think these came out, the, the first of those franchises came out within a month of each other. And I was one of the people that I liked both, but I actually preferred the first Equalizer, the first John Wick. I think I mentioned it on our John Wick Chapter 4 episode. I wasn't as crazy about the first John Wick as other people were. I thought the action was, was good and I liked some of the style, but I didn't feel like it completely found itself. And while the sequels have definitely just gone crazy, bonkers crazy i've been all for it specifically two and three but i did like the first equalizer more I, like you had mentioned i liked the the love the look of it uh it's you know obviously the vigilanteism uh harkens back i mean never saw the show but it made me think obviously of the death wish franchise um mm. i loved kind of you know you said some of the cinematography in that and the fact that it was kind of like a slasher and some of its nasty violence like that that finale in the hardware store i thought was incredible but it's really gory um yet What's funny is, despite me liking that one more than John Wick, I, I stuck with the John Wick franchise I, and saw all those in the theaters. I never continued with Equalizer. I had owned the second one for years on Blu-ray and just didn't watch it, probably because I knew it got somewhat of a mixed reception. And I just, I don't know, I just wasn't drawn back into it. And I had planned on re-watching both, re-watching the first and then watching the second one for the first time. But I only got to the second one uh, just because of time constraints. I wanted to make sure I got it in. But to, to put us back onto the bingo card, the first Equalizer has played before AEW programming on TNT for like a year straight. So I've seen the last 30 <laughs> minutes over and over again. And I can only say, even in a you know slightly sanitized for cable TV, that finale is still a lot of fun. I was not a fan of the second one like you. I thought it was underwhelming. 
I think it got bogged down by a lot of just bland, like you said, uh, international, almost espionage. Uh, I like Pedro Pascal, but if that was the first thing I saw him in, I would have just thought like he has decent presence, but it's not all that great. He had a thankless role. Uh, the finale set during a hurricane, uh, which ended up being a timely watch for me, was better as a concept and an execution, uh, especially compared to, to how the hardware store went. It felt almost small scale, despite having a big scale idea. I don't mind that second one. I just, I think it's just like you said, kind of, it's pa- like what you're saying with this one. I-, I thought that one was passable, but really just kind of underwhelming. And then honestly, this third one I thought was even more underwhelming. Uh, I-, I can appreciate the fact that maybe they're trying to really play up the introspection more. Um, but I think the problem is a, it's very surface level. Uh, especially the way that Italy is handled. I actually hated the way that they handled the entire like community because it was so stereotypical and nobody felt real. And that's why I ended up excluding most of those actors. I mean, I almost wasn't even going to include the apparent love interest of Amina. We'll get into that more later. Uh, the only one that I thought maybe had somewhat of a connection was the doctor. But even then, I thought that he was so much of a stereotype that he didn't feel real. And last week, I had mentioned, I think, a lot of even though I wasn't ultimately a fan of uh, Gran Turismo, part of my softer reception to it or soft skip to it was David Harbour. Well, I think was with two and is now definitely with this one. A lot of this is on the shoulders of Denzel Washington. He does another bingo card. He does the heavy lifting in these. He is so good that he does somewhat elevate people, but everything surrounding him in this movie is so vanilla, generic. Everything with the mafia is the most... banal mafia crap you're ever going to see uh the villains honestly i genuinely had to i had to be them because they made no impact whatsoever i had to like come i legitimately went to other film reviews to make sure like fact checking that like i'm correctly attributing who is correct to this right because i don't know if they actually were if they were just one of the henchmen I th- as much as I liked Dakota fanning as an actress and i do think like her reprisal chemistry i guess you could say with with Denzel was sweet. I didn't buy her whatsoever in the CIA role. And I'm going to get into how I feel like Denzel's character actually undermines her unintentionally throughout. But we'll get to that with the spoilers. I like David Edmond a lot. He can probably play this role, but it's a thankless role. And I don't think he did much of anything. I wouldn't have even brought him up if it wasn't David Denman. But since I do like him like you do, I do think he's very sexy when he's a little bit more heavier set. I, I just thought this was a nothing movie. And to be honest with you, if you're going for an action movie, you're going to be very disappointed because after a good start with Denzel shooting a dude in the ass, like you said, there's about a good hour of him having to recoup himself, uh, rejuvenate himself. And then the action beats we get are very brief. And I will give this movie credit. I actually do like the look of it. I agree with you, though, that I think... I understand why they were going for this like film noir, neo-noir look to really just show that even though we're in the, the beauty of Italy, this this town, it's almost too on the nose, is is warped of its color and it's just this drab area. I will say, I do, I, I do wish though that there was more juxtaposition. And I think they had an opportunity when you were cutting back to the CIA looking elsewhere. That's when I think maybe the rest of Italy should have popped and it didn't. Um, it's not as you know overt in its film noirish look but i did like the look of this and the way that the action is shot as it has been in all this series not only does it look great it sounds great there's actually a, a jump scare of sorts in this that got me more than any horror movie oh my has. god yeah recently i did legit jump out of my seat 
But I just, I thought this was a very boring, bland, and turgid supposed finale. And it just, it's coasting on Denzel's goodwill and acting. Because nobody else in this really feels like an actual character. They feel like a caricature of what we want Mm. these people to be. And yeah, if you're coming for an action movie, the action is outside of the, the sound design being great. And I love the look of it being you mentioned the shadowy photography. It's very much shot like that. There's really unique looks of like in back alleys with cars, but you're also not seeing much of it. A lot of it is more constrained, which I think was a point to really sh- to hype up the, the introspection, but it all falls flat. And I just thought this was a really boring installment. And what I find so funny is when I was obviously going to the second one for the first time and was trying to revisit the first, the series is... Timeline time wise is losing about ten minutes. So the first one's about two hours and twelve. As much as I like the first one, it could have used some tightening. The second is just at two hours. And then this one's about an hour and I think 47, 48 or so. And yet I feel like each subsequent sequel or installment has felt longer. Equalizer two felt yes. longer than the first one to me. And this one felt even longer because it's just such a slow, molasses like pace. It's languid. Uh, and I just if if it resonated more, fine. I could have seen it working, but this this very much just felt like a pilot for a television show that you're just trying to set the tone for everything as opposed to really fleshing out characters. And that's a problem when the big crux of this is supposed to be, you know, Denzel really coming into his own and finding his community. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't buy this community except accepting him as one of their own. I thought that was like, nowhere did I feel like they genuinely took to him. Uh, Also, I just had to mention, I know it's supposed to be like this culture thing, but he goes to order tea early on at one of those like local cafes because it's one of those communities where everyone has disposable income and can just go to like restaurants all of the time. That's such a, I know it's a movie (laughs) and a television trope and I actually kind of like it, but I always just find it funny. I'm like, I don't care how much money you make. How are you doing this all the time? Um, Jerry Seinfeld over here just ordering a coffee at restaurants, but he goes to order a tea, but then they, the, the waiter brings him a coffee because they're like, tea is for like women and I think children and or something. Weak tourists and weak tourists. Like and I was just like, <laughs> he, Damn. he ordered a tea. Like I prefer coffee over tea. I don't like tea, but what the hell? Like, I don't know why that stuck out to me, but I'm like, that doesn't make this community seem great. I wanted to yell at this dude. How dare you? I ordered a tea <laughs> and you're not going to bring me what I ordered. But yeah, I just, yeah, but don't forget the sex the sexy fish guy let him let him get all that fish for yeah. Enzo yeah, like for free. And so. to be fair, it is a nice community. And to be honest with you, that the coffee did look great. Like I, I wanted to go to Italy and have their coffee after watching this. It's just I, I thought this was just a really bland almost nothing movie, despite the fact that it is so well polished. Uh and I, I thought it was very underwhelming. So it's a it's yep. a big it, not a big skip but it's just a skip in general for me no soft about it uh, I just it's very funny to me f- thinking back to 2014 being like hey Equalizer is better and now how the tides have turned almost a decade later where I'm more on that John Wick bandwagon and I think it's because that series each installment wanted to one up their action and their visual style and I feel like each of these Equalizer sequels even this one which is trying a little bit more with the introspection really isn't like. Even the stuff that I like about it, sound design and looks, it's not all that different than what we were seeing in the first one. So it's just, like you said, it's a retread. It's a retread. It's it's just doing yeah. the same over and over again. It, it, I mean, this, you know, I ragged on <laughs> Troy. Forgive me, Troy. Forgive me, Troy. I ragged on Top Gun Maverick as not being the second coming of film and essentially just being Top Gun, just with like a, a rejiggered, like younger cast introduced. 
Um, and this film is a lot like the equalizer one. I mean, you substitute the Russians for the, um, Italians substitute what's happening with, uh, uh, whatever the thing was in, in the first one about the um, the hooker, uh, the hooker who looked like my niece. Maybe that's why I'm blocking that out or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's just it's just the same movie, just with the added, as you said, the introspection. Like, and I'm not opposed to films. Uh, I liken in some ways. I'll liken this to No Time to Die. I'm not opposed to films where they take a character and they show you. They've got some age on them, that they are, in fact, vulnerable, that they can't do what they used to do, and that maybe this game is not for them anymore. That's one of the that's one of the highlights of No Time to Die, because I think that film was very, very problematic. But there was this sort of sense of like, you know, there's younger, hungrier agents under, you know, Bond. The world has moved on, and they're just these older players that may not have the energy for it, you know? And I felt the same way about this. But as a send off, it's it was not as strong as it should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I th- yeah, and I think also to not just say it's a retreat because that second one was a retreat as well. I mean, him r- basically being a surrogate father to the one kid, which is just like him being a surrogate, f- you know, father to Claire Grace Moretz, the the you know, young prostitute in the first one, who I think was very much supposed to be Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously totally. the way that he has this relationship with Dakota Fanning, obviously she doesn't need that that kind of saving, but she still needs in his mind the guidance and we'll learn out to why but just like how we think that the vigilanteism you know that kind of commentary doesn't quite work because he's putting this town in more danger the other issue is and i guess you could say to a degree as well with no time to die but whenever you do these grizzled old action heroes you need to have the action showing that they're older we don't get that once we get to the action i'm gonna say this right off the bat and i guess maybe it's a bit of a spoiler this is Denzel is most invincible in these movies. He's always been, but here it's this is his Steven Seagal type role where it's like nothing's going to touch this dude. And we talked about uh, in Mission Impossible with Troy, the recent one, the the vulnerability uh, made those characters, uh, especially Haley Atwell, more likable and more endearing. There's no vulnerability in when it comes to the action for Denzel. And honestly, even when it's supposedly there in the drama, it's just I don't know. It never really rose above just feeling like we're getting from point A to point B. I never really believed that he was in danger. And I never, like I said, never really believed that he was connecting with this community. Uh, And and I just, I almost thought he was going to go back to Boston at the end. Like uh, just because I, (laughs) well, (laughs) you know, but how I just didn't think that he had this community. Um, But I don't know. It's just, yeah, I I think actually, 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 there's another movie that I would like to analogize to this film, and that's the third Iron Man. And the the thing that I loved about the third Iron Man that people, I think, maybe hated about it was that was really more about his identity. Like, mm-hmm. so in Iron Man 3, uh, you know, Tony Stark is finding himself and he's trying to see, like, who am I outside of the suit? Um, can I be... Tony Stark, the superhero, and not rely on the suit. And here, Washington's kind of doing the same thing. He is now vulnerable. He knows he can't be the superhero. He needs time to heal now because he's older. Um, you know, who who am I actually and why am I doing these things? You know, mm-hmm. there is a central question which I'm blanking on just because you're right, the movie's so bland. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's another. I think Iron Man 3 is another sort of comparable thing about an aging superhero in some ways. But yeah, total skip. Uh, skip for you. Yep. And uh, 
I guess we all head into our spoiler section. Yeah. So I accidentally yeah. spoiled a little bit already. My apologies, folks. But just, a, just a tiny bit, but not really. <laughs> I also a shit. spoiled a little bit of it, too. But I know, I know. Because guess what? It's a skip, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, if you haven't seen The Equalizer 3 or The Threequalizer starring Denzel Washington, directed by noted action director Antoine Fuqua, you might want to turn us off because we are going to sound the alarm or escape to the Amalfi coast or Ooh, I don't know. I like, we're going to do something. Sound the alarm, baby. In, there we go. In three, two, one. Okay. So at the end of the film, we discover because Dakota Fanning's character is like, why did you give me the tip? Why did you do whatever? And we discover that she is the daughter of Melissa Leo and Bill Pullman to well at least melissa leo was the cia character from one and two and unfortunately she was dis dispatched in a very ugly but very brutal violent fight in part two um but dakota fanning is their daughter and she is in the cia and so what we come to realize when we look back on all of this is that he is attempting to strengthen her resolve in some ways as an agent help her along I didn't feel like he was undermining her. Why Why did you okay, so feel that? The reason I do this, and I know where they're trying to go for it, because all, all businesses do this, and it's all mentorships do this. You yes. give them, you don't give them the answer, but you give them like kind of the questions like, oh, why is this? Why is that? But the way, and maybe Antoine Fuqua undermines her more. Every time that she makes, like when he goes, hey, why would you know they be smuggling in on this port? All she does is reiterate his questions to Benman oh, and them. She literally just says it. <laughs> and we never, so maybe it's more Fuqua than him. We never see her actually learning from that. Like when she asks this question of like, who, why should I ask this question to keep going? Every time that she, you know, discovers something, her, her resolve gets stronger. It's literally just her reiterating what he said. He's not, in that case, and this is more Fuqua, they're not helping her. They're just giving her the answers without actually giving her the answers. They're trying to do that, lead the horse, you know, to water, you know, to, you know, teach it to basically fend for itself but i never got yeah. the vibe like coming out of this if they were to do another equalizer with her like i would feel like she would just be lost without him because we never saw you know her beginnings which we don't need to but we don't i mean honestly when they introduced her i thought she was just like at a call center like i thought she was a 911 <laughs> operator i didn't know she was with the cia so no i think there was a title was there a title card there was a title I feel card like there was a title no, there card. was but the way that they had her framed and the way she's answered the call i just thought she was a 911 operator even though there was the title cia card. receptionist <laughs> yeah how and may i direct your call basically and like i just every time I cut to her, I never felt like she was piecing things together. Like he's presenting her with questions and the talks that they have, but I don't actually, I just felt like anything that she thought of, he had already posed as a question. She's just reiterating it and she is not out on her own yet. Have we never saw a sequence to, to my knowledge where she had to decipher something for her own, where she could have been like, well, this was his thought process. So what if I apply it here, which is how it's supposed to be. That's why I felt well, she was undermined. I don't ever feel like she had growth. Far be it from me to defend Wank's screenplay here, but um, so I will sometimes also mentor people in, in my legal career, and I, I saw a lot of in this what I do, which is what you're saying, mm -hmm. which is essentially you don't want to give them the answers, but you want them, you want to foster a thinking process, right? And just walk them through step by step, like how do you get from A 
to your intended goal, right? Mm-hmm. And and making sure that they hit B, C, and then they get to their goal D. And I I personally thought that they actually did that kind of well because she finds him and he sort of is like, okay, that actually was the first test. Mm. How did you find me? And then the second one, they're at the church. Also, I love that he walks up the steps and he's like, <laughs> he's like winded and he has to sit down or whatever. Um, uh, and then, you know, again, it's that second level, like, okay, you're here, but have you thought about why here? But I agree. I actually laughed out loud when she was like, have you ever thought about why here? And she just repeats it yeah. to Denman. And then he's like, oh, good call. Ha ha, gotcha, it's, girl. And I, honestly, I think that's probably why more, because it was unfair to say he undermined her, because I I, I mean, I've had those relationships, and I, I still had them, and I do like that. Like, that's how I learned, just, you know, presenting that. I just think the two examples you're giving didn't, like, I, the way they were presented, one just kind of felt like, it d- didn't seem like that hard to find Denzel to begin with, but two, I guess the way it was framed, it didn't seem like that was part of his test to her. Like, and, and again, yeah. I think it comes down to the ultimate test needs to be, does she crack something in this case that he doesn't? And that is missing from this. And the fact that the only times we see her being praised, not by Denzel, by others, where that really is how that becomes a success. Like your mentorship, yeah. it becomes a success when other people start to notice, Hey, this person is asking the right questions without you being mm-hmm. there. We don't see that because the only time we see her talking to dead men is just reiterating, uh, shit. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was I, laughable. It was as laughable. he's driving by the Coliseum. And it's yeah, kind of like, mm. yeah. And the, the, her getting involved in that car explosion, which I guess is an okay action. See, I don't know. I just, and also, so I had watched for the first time Equalizer 2, two days prior to seeing uh, Equalizer 3. Maybe I missed it in the second one. I don't remember them mentioning they had a daughter at all. Maybe I missed it in two. They did not. And in, and in fact, Melissa Leo's name is different. It's not Collins. So yeah. they they were trying not to telegraph it. But the problem with the movie is, is if it's so bland then a viewer is not going to care when she says, why me? And he's like, he doesn't answer her. Exactly. I didn't care about why me. Exactly. And then when you see the picture, you know, it's supposed to be this big aha. And it was a big aha for me. I was like, oh, that's their daughter. No wonder why. But then at that point, I didn't give a shit. Not only did I not give a shit, I actually rolled my eyes at that because I was just like, wait a minute. I literally just watched two and (laughs) I don't remember them mentioning her. And I get that the idea, like you said, different name was probably trying to hide her for protection. But considering two doesn't take place that many years before this, she would, I mean, I guess their argument could have been she was off training. There's no way that wouldn't, she wouldn't have been brought up. Like, that's one of those so, things that sequels do. And it's not just to this, where it's you try to retcon stuff or force things yeah. in to tie things together. And in this case, you didn't need it. I don't think that moment was that big. And I know I had a smaller crowd when I saw this, just because I guess it was somewhat of an earlier showing. Um, but nobody went, oh, like there was no reaction to it. It was just like, wah, wah. <laughs> And that was a yes, framed and, as a big moment. Yeah. So retconning, we're looking at you, Saw, Saw 10. <laughs> Show us what you got. Well, at least um, with the Saw franchise, it's laughable and it's kind of fun how badly they, like I mentioned the Fast X, that, that it becomes like a Saw movie because they're trying so hard to retcon when they don't really need to. You, you're overthinking it. Here, yeah, I know. If they here, had, it's not even funny. It's not like a, a unintentional like charm to it. It's just stupid. Well, if they had, if they... If they had done it Saul-wise, we would have discovered in a flashback that, like, Dakota Fanning, like, brought tea to, uh, 
to Melissa Leo, yes. and then she was like, "Get me this document, bitch," or whatever. And then that's that's <laughs> it's all about coffee. I'm not, you know. And then like, <laughs> da, 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 you know, right. and how she what, just you brought me tea. Fuck you. And then how David but, uh, Denman might have like come across came across Denzel at one point, just in the background of like in the first right. one. <laughs> David Denman exactly. was shopping at the hardware store when Denzel was setting everything no, up. No, or we uh. Right. No, or he's the one who picks up the bloody hammer that he wipes down is like, oh, I think I can use. This oh, my God. In the first great. <laughs> More movies. <laughs> if you're going to do this retcon, do the really cheesy saw way where you just like, that's yeah. the only thing that I really like. Do about it. Fast it's his, it's uh, it's Tobin Bell's dentist is behind it all. Yeah. Um, So uh, going back to the starting it with him being vulnerable, I did like that aspect of it. You know what I mean? Um, But then I was also kind of like. Okay, how long is he going to be debilitated yeah. before he starts cracking bones? You know, and to which I would say, Justin, that's why he could do all those things again because he fully healed. Yeah, that's... he used Italian fish and tea to recuperate. Yeah, you know what? And, and so was, he got his superhero was, stuff back. I was going to say, I worked for two years in a, a therapy department at a nursing home, and I can tell you, nobody when we nurse him back to health is this strong. But you know what? We didn't have the Italian fish and coffee, so I think that's we right. found the Amalfitos is very healing. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know what? We found that uh, the answer to that. I just yeah, it's just it's also the other get there. Oh, yeah, it totally took the long to get there. The other thing that I wanted to say to you, too, was that um, I don't know, maybe Troy can answer this question. But like the love interest takes him out to this, uh, presumably uh, the little beach where they open up like this food market or whatever. But it almost becomes like like the like the the gold, like the horn and horn or the the golden buffet of of the Amalfi Coast because they just go to each cart and they're picking up plates, but they're not paying. So I don't. I, I don't know if that was like a cultural thing that maybe they just cook and then they say, hey, villagers, here you go. And and maybe that's why they sit at the cafe so much because they're just kind of like, oh, you want some tea or coffee? Yeah. It's on me or and, whatever. And to be fair, and, that's definitely the reason. It's just funny because <laughs> obviously they apparently didn't t- you know take to him for like a couple of weeks. But then it also begs the question of like – and I know I'm overthinking this. I shouldn't be. But like how are any of, any of you pay- – paying like obviously that's probably why the mafia is after you because nobody you're not making any money because every single person making in this any community money, exactly it's just i mean in a part of it, it's like kind of going back to the bartering system which could maybe work but uh obviously it doesn't in today's capitalist society if it's not going to work with the mafia uh, it's it again it just comes down to it being forced it, it, it's a very forced yeah. i'm sure this exists i mean i know I've, I've had communities where uh you know i've had friends who own shop and if i went to their donut shop or the pizzeria they refused to let me pay they were just always like we're gonna give you a slicer don't so i get that but like the but i also wasn't going every single day i'm sure after a while i'm like listen we can't right. just keep giving you free food you're gonna need to pay you're gonna eat us out of house and home yeah but, you could do this once in a blue um, moon but so the reason the reason why I also said in in my spoiler free review that this one in particular hit me with the whole like well is he really a guardian angel if he's doing all these crazy things and the reason why I say that is because the film's other big aha moment at the end of the film is that we discover that the reason why in the opening scene where he's sort of like envisioned like this angel of death slash like Conan, because he's, he's sitting on this throne and there's all this light behind him and he's sort of like a violent Messiah. But what we discover is that he was there because he tracked like a Ponzi scheme, like money laundering thing 
to that farm and he ended up killing all those people because it was like this weird like drug outfit or what have you. But he was there because someone in Boston that he knew his 401k got hacked and they took all the money and it went to this embezzling farm. And so at the end of the film, Dakota Fanning hands off this $360,000 in cash, which he takes from that farm. And then, you know, they're all crying and like, oh, we don't have to move and we can stay. And then I'm like, wait a minute. He killed 20 million people on that fucking farm, mm. right? Shot the guy in the ass, which, you know, buckshot in the ass at close range. Like, I'm pretty sure he blew off some testicles too. Mm. And then it's like, we're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, he got his he got his pension back. I'm like, yeah, that did not sit well it, with me. It was it was just eye roll worthy to me. It was just like the twist with Dakota Fanning. And I'm like, it's just one too many. You're overthinking it at that point. It doesn't, especially because when they mentioned like, they're hinting at it's like one of the people he gave a lift drive to. I was like, was it kind of that sweet old man he had a relationship with him too? And wasn't that dude? I'm like, well, I don't yes. get, I don't with care the painting now. and the old lady. Yeah, I only like, so sweet. But I only again, like that old dude. Very television. Yeah, it's just, you know, like it's very television. That's where, you know, this feeling like bringing that show t to screen. Yeah, just and, and to go to like also putting people in danger. He's putting this whole community. I mean, I know the community is already on edge and in danger, but he's making it 10 times worse because you're going to tell me there's no way the mafia is not going to come back and retaliate even with him there. Right. And also, like, right. I don't believe that this this the community would have finally stood up to the mafia when the big boss comes in and shoots the ear of the one uh, officer because then, because then Denzel comes in and is like, Oh, take me. I don't believe that that would have been the moment that they realized, Hey, we can just stand up to this guy and we have a numbers advantage that well, Justin, the, the sexy fish man gave him free fish and the woman, the grandma gave him lemons. They yeah. adopted him. And well, when life okay. gives you lemons, <laughs> don't get shot in the air and stand up for the dude that possibly made you get shot in the air. I, it's just. So I have to tell you the I am Spartacus scene, which what you're referencing to, mm -hmm. which is when, um, you know, the mafia person comes to the piazza and he says to all of them, give me the person who did this, who killed my, my sexy brother. That guy was hot by the way. Yeah. Um, but you know, give, give up the person. And, and I'll save all of you. But then there's this I am Spartacus moment where they're like, you'll have to kill me too. And then they all pull out their phones. There's even a shot over the shoulder of the mm -hmm. old man in the in the uh, apartment above looking over, filming it or whatever. I just rolled yeah, my eyes. I, know I was the, like, good God. And I, Yeah, and that's what I did too. I know the whole point was supposed to be they finally felt empowered because of him. And this moment only happened because he fought back and like embarrassed his son. Because if not, right. they never would have had this moment where the guy would have came in by himself. But again, it just felt so trite and formulaic and I just eye roll worthy. It was so laughable and it's such a yeah. shame because like we said earlier, I think Denzel, even in the second one, cause the second one's not that good. He's again, great in it. Everything with that kid in the second one d didn't work because I didn't like that. The actor, uh, the young, but I still liked his mentorship. And I, I've made like, and maybe that's why I feel bad saying like he undermined because he didn't intend to undermine Dakota Fanning's character, but it does feel like the script and the direction almost actually undermine him more than anything, all of his progress and wanting to help others. Like you said, he's just, he's putting more people in danger. He's, it still doesn't really work with his vigilantism because he's, you know, he's almost being too violent. It's the, it's the Batman joke. It was like, oh, Batman doesn't kill, but apparently he maims people within an inch of their life. Right. Well, obviously Denzel, you know, the equalizer does kill, but, and to go with that action, like it's shot well, but th this whole finale, the, the, 
other two films had big finales. You had that big finale in the hardware store, and even though it was underwhelming, you had this big set piece in the hurricane. The set piece here is him just going into the Mafia Don's house and just picking everyone off, but it feels like a setup scene. Like when there's a part of me that kind of likes the idea that it's subverting your expectations and you're just watching the Mafia Don slowly crawling to his death and then getting hit by a car. And I guess that's kind of what they're going for, but it's it's so weird that you feel like you're setting up for something and then it just kind of falls flat. Like it's it's a perfect representation of what this whole series has been, building towards something that unfortunately after the first has kind of just fallen flat because it just uh, yeah. I don't know. It I left think a bad was, taste in my I, mouth. I think after the sort of um, overstuffed enchilada that was the sequel i think there was an attempt to like sort of dial it back to the core of the first film but all they did was just repeat themselves and yeah it just it the yeah the ending was crazy i mean the guy had really pretty feet and there were some (laughs) gory gory dispatched Mm. people especially the one guy that got the like Mm. the jason friday 13th style poker through his neck like i said it is so crazy to me that like because this is targeting like adult crowds that normally wouldn't like slashers i'm like these are all especially the first and now this one even though this one obscures a lot more uh through nice photography it's still a slasher movie <laughs> like this is like you it said, is. jason Voorhees, or and it's it's funny because I, I could see my mother liking these movies even though she doesn't like like slasher movies and horror movies but i also think she's one of the people that loves like id channel like murder mystery true crime stuff oh, and yes, it's yes. funny because she'll talk to me like i don't know how you i just can't get into those horror movies they're so like nasty but then she'll just describe all the shit that happens in like these real world events and she today she gives me the gory details and i'm just like at least mine is fake woman what the hell (laughs) she's like oh my god you've got to see the first 48 hours death of a cheerleader and then it's like no i'm watching saw oh i don't know how you yeah it's just like yeah and then they and then this poor woman they like they scalped her or stuff like that and i'm like but the way you're explaining you're going into pretty heavy detail here jesus (laughs) so so two things one Again, I did not like the desaturated tone of this. Uh, I I think it was still well shot. I just didn't like the desaturated Mm -hmm. imagery. So much so that I thought the beginning was a flashback. I thought it was going to suddenly pop to like the very colorful Italy of say Fast X or, or, um, you know, even um, uh, what was that Italian any number of Italian romantic films under the Tuscan sun, etc., yeah. Or even a Fellini um, movie. I mean, I know. Yeah. Or even a Fellini movie. I was like, were, Oh shit, this is the look. The more I think about it, I think they were trying to, because while Fellini can definitely romanticize Italy, he can also have that kind of black and white photography that is shadowy. So I think maybe he was trying to go for that. But to your point, even if it's, it's purposeful, it, it does work against them because it, it drained your energy too much. There's not, Obviously, a juxtaposition would have helped, but there's no good balance. You've got to walk that tightrope, and they did it too much that even though I can appreciate on its own the look, it does hinder the movie more than actually helping it. Yeah. Also, I clocked two really good jump scares. So which ones were you talking about? Definitely which one were you talking about? when the officer get, runs home and right when he walks in and he gets hit like in the back of the head with like a pipe, just that big, loud thwack. Like I knew he was probably going to get hit, but like the way that it, it happened just caught me off guard and that, that got me good. Oh, I okay. So the two jump scares that got me good were... Um, and this is funny because this scene actually capitalizes on a, a Robert Richardson trademark, which is harsh overhead lighting. So when the the sexy uh, mafia 
brother is like, we're going to get him. We're going to fucking get him after he was like humiliated in the mm-hmm. restaurant, which I think is probably the best scene in this film, honestly. Um, yeah. But when he's out there and then he's like, go to th- go to the van because we're going to go in and get him or whatever. And they're talking and then the van just comes yeah. in and like fucking whacks that one guy. That scared the shit <laughs> out of me. I was like, oh. You know why I think um, it didn't get me as much, even though I love that moment. It's still great sound design, but there's that split kind of second where you can kind of see it coming and hearing it. Whereas the one with the pipe, it literally just, it was like that jump scare cat moment where it, yeah, it yeah. is so loud that it was just the loudness of it came out of nowhere for me. It genuinely jolted me because unlike Gran Turismo, they did not uh, turn down the volume in my auditorium. Oh. Equalizer three. <laughs> yes, it was yes. loud as shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then the other jump scare was, of course, where Dakota Fanning is like, oh, really? That's a good tip. Um, let me talk to you in a second. And then she gets blown across the piazza. That, I think, that one scared me. I think that didn't get me too. just because I had a feeling. So I didn't expect all of the cars to blow up like that, but I felt like something's going to happen. Somebody's going to grab. They telegraphed it too much, but they're like, well, let me just get in my car. I'm like, oh, something's happening. So I'm like, oh, yeah. Explosions. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because seconds, uh, seconds before that, Scott was like, she shouldn't go with that officer. Something's going to happen. And then, it, and then it blew up and I was like, damn it. Stop, Scooter, stop. Which once again <laughs> shows that he's just putting people in danger. Though that is her job. That's That one's just me being cheeky. Her job is to be put in danger. Yeah. So he didn't do that. She did that. <laughs> That's just the nature it of the is. business. Definitely. All right. Any? Did you have any other further thoughts? No. I think we equalized the shit yeah, out of we this did. one. Uh, I will say this: uh, <laughs> all of my enthusiasm for this franchise was starting to dwindle with two, and then I. And honestly, I didn't even think the trailers for this one all looked all that good. But then I thought, well, once I finally watch two again, two, that'll probably rejuvenate me, right? No. Uh, and then I, yeah, I, I don't want to see this series continue. Unfortunately, I, I'm almost curious about the series with Queen Latifah, but that's more just because I like Queen Latifah. But I, I know that first one probably still holds up. I can tell you right now that the last thirty minutes sure as hell do. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I love, I love the first one. It's such a it's a beautiful work of brutal, violent yeah. art. And, and you know what? The first one is a very familiar story, but it still has a freshness value because it's the first time we're seeing Antoine Fuqua and Denzel tackle it. The problem with yeah. these sequels is, yeah, it's more of the same, which isn't always the ba- a bad thing. But in this case, it was. It felt just very formulaic and it... It didn't feel like they really wanted to do anything with these characters. It felt like we need to make money. The first made a lot of money. We've got a franchise on our hands. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. The first the, uh, other one other thing that bugged me about one and two was that obviously they did the whole like uh, Guy Ritchie, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes thing where you see his thinking about like a scene and how to handle stuff. And then in two, they did a different version of that that didn't quite work either. And thankfully, they jettisoned yeah. all of that in this and just went straight for the story. The only thing they came close to doing in this was when he has that flashback and it's that zoom in on the eye. And then we see his flashbacks to like terror, which is always the corniest thing. Like, do we have to do the zoom into the eye to let us know we're going inside the dude's mind? Like, come on. I get it. Yes. <laughs> Well, we are zooming into our final verdicts, and that is yes, a skip nice. from Cupcake. And, and a skip from me as well. A very underwhelming, disappointed yeah. skip. But we love you, Denzel. Yes. And we also love your son, who incidentally was on the Amalfi Coast filming Tenant. So that's an odd, weird synthesis between yeah. uh, the, the him and his son. And but, you know what? Unless it gets pushed, 
Daddy opens up September with Equalizer 3, and Son's going to end it with the creator. Okay. <laughs> also, I just called Denzel Washington Daddy. That was weird. I'm so Daddy Washington. Yeah, Daddy. Daddy uh, Washington. I know that's right. Okay, so <laughs> if you saw the Threequalizer and you think we got it wrong, but I don't think we did. But anyway, uh, you can certainly email us your thoughts or even DM us. So we have social media presence, Instagram, Twitter, Facebooks, the Book of Faces. Uh, you can also email us at our Gmail account, which is watchskip plus spell out all the words at gmail.com. Please, 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 wherever you're listening to us, whatever pod weapon of choice you choose, uh, please leave us a review because that's the way that our humble little podcast gets out in terms of being suggested. So the more reviews, the more we get suggested, the more we grow our little, lovely, wonderful podcast community. We hope it'll be five stars, but if it's not, we love the criticism too. If you love us, you will certainly love our um pod fathers the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema with big willie and sammy and then not a bomb with brad and troy as well as the og's night of the living podcast we would also suggest the following pod uh cast which we also love daniel and david over at wild dream podcast they celebrated their one year anniversary death by dvd with harry we haven't had harry on in a while either yeah, we, we should um figure that out raiders of the podcast with kevin kevin we promise he will eventually be on another episode after all this time, finally getting him on for our Oppenheimer um, episode. Backlook Cinema podcast with Zoe. We need to have him on because we were on for Brian's song, but then we haven't since. Yeah. Uh, VHS Files, Silva and Gold, Cult of Muscle, Feminine Critique, Married with Clickers, Red Hunk. Ooh, Red Hunk. That's right. I, I already forgot that that was the new nickname we, we came up with on this. Uh, well, we hope that you don't forget any new nicknames we come up with. Uh, you always listen, you never skip, and you'll remember that you are the plus. Because I'm not and three lies, but I seem to be dumbstruck by you, because this movie was such an underwhelming experience. That didn't really work. <laughs> He's a red hunk. Ooh. He's a red hunk. Yeah. Red <laughs> hunk. 